listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast. Today it is Friday the 16th of September 2022 and I'm here in the NK News studio sitting opposite Charles Thurwell and we're going to talk about doing business, doing work, having experience in North Korea. Uh, before we get started, please everyone a reminder to ask you all to share this episode with friends, neighbors and strangers and also subscribe to us. Consider buying a subscription to nknews.org which is a wonderful news website that my, uh, where my journalistic colleagues put out news stories every single day and your subscriptions help to fund that excellent journalism. Uh, also, you can follow NKNews.org and myself, Jack OZ, on Twitter. If you have questions, guest recommendations or suggestions, email us at podcast at nknews.org or send them to me directly via Twitter. Okay, so to introduce my guest today, Charlie Thurwell, he lived uh, for a time, worked for a time in North Korea, early days, and now lives and works in Indonesia. And he's going to share some of his interesting experiences that he had back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, traveling to and doing things in North Korea. Welcome on the show, Charlie. Thank you, Jaco. It's very nice to be here. I'm a big fan of your show, so nice, oh, thanks to, very much. nice to finally get to, get to join it. Excellent. Uh, so you, you came to Korea as a student, didn't you? I was. I was a student. I had studied a little bit of Korean at uh, Sydney University and didn't learn anything um, until I came here on exchange for my third year of uh, university and studied at Yonsei. And back in the, uh, in the 1990s, that, that was well before Korea was hot. There was no Korea wave. There was no K-pop or at least no discussion of it in Australia. So what, what brought you into Korean studies in the first place? It, it was... Sort of a, let's call it in hindsight, a happy accident that yeah. I, my elder brother was studying Chinese. Uh-huh. And because of that, I decided to choose a different country. Yeah. Um, it made sense to, to my young mind then. And I was always going to learn an Asian language because I grew up as an expatriate. Um, and my father was always a big traveler and, and wanted us to learn languages. So he said, go learn an Asian language. He believed in Asia. I didn't want to learn Japanese at the time because there was a lot of uh, Australians learning Japanese in mm. the high schools. Chinese, you know, as the aforementioned, my brother, I decided to choose something different. Though, yeah. um, you know, honestly, a lot of my family ended up going to China. So it would have made a lot of sense, um, chi- Chinese, but there was a, you know, Korea was the, the other choice. So I decided to learn Korean. I had no prior knowledge of Korea whatsoever. Um, before I got here. And when did you arrive here to study at Yonsei? So it would have been January of 1995. Ah, 95. Okay. I came in uh, uh, July of 96 to teach English for the Korean Ministry of Education's EPIC program. It had a different name back then, but uh, oh, really? so about 18 months after you. But so I came that to early, teach, not to you're, learn. you're really at the same time then. Well, I mean, and, and similar to you, I didn't go to Japan because I thought, oh, there's already a lot of Australians teaching English in Japan. It seems yeah. like that market may already be somewhat saturated. I'll go somewhere that no one's going to yet. So I came to Korea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, very similar sort of choices made. Yeah. And... Look, I've been walking around Seoul here to, to, you know, last few days and catching up with some old friends. And, you know, I look at what happened with China yeah. over the last few years and my family was very heavily engaged there, you know, speaking, uh, you know, really good Chinese and, and very involved in that place for many years, you know, living there 15 years or more. Mm. And, you know, right now they can't go there. And, you know, they feel like they're you know, their ability to engage with the country is, has lessened over time. Um, but for me, Korea has improved and, 
you know, I can just be thankful that I, uh, you know, I chose it. Did your relatives feel less welcome in China now than they used to? I think every foreigner feels less welcome in China. And I also have a bit of a history in China and spent a lot of time there. And I saw this very early on that China was beginning to change. I saw it around the Beijing Olympics. Mm. And, you know, from then I, you know, maybe because I had this, I wasn't living there. I was just traveling there every single year. So I had a bit of an outsider's perspective. So every time you went back, you could feel a bit of a change. And it's just deteriorated and deteriorated. Um, China, when I first went there, which was actually also 95, was just fascinating and was just getting better and better. And it was amazing in the early 2000s. But it has become more bland. I mean, the government authorities have cracked down on a lot of the interesting sort of little restaurants and stuff, even the facades and stuff like this have become more uniform. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends who've got even restaurants there and they are just constantly getting told no by authorities, whether they be Chinese or, or um, foreigners, you know, I feel it's just becoming a more uh, stifling environment. So mm. a lot of, I've got a lot of foreign friends from China and I feel like they're ability to engage in the future with China. They, they all just don't know if they'll have that sort of future in China anymore to be able to travel there and, and enjoy it. Now, you, you uh, coming here in the mid-1990s, you had a very lucky, as another happy accident, where you're here as a student, you're in your early 20s, and then suddenly you have this opportunity to pay a visit to North Korea. So I was hired by a French com- company, Decathlon, which is the big sporting goods company, which I think everyone is uh, aware of now around the world. Of course, in those days, um, we, there was no Decathlon stores here in Asia. Mm. Um, but now it's a But big, there were factories, weren't there? There was manufacturing. So they, weren't, they were doing, um, you know, order-based factor, you know, factories. So they're not, uh, they didn't own any factories. They were mm. just doing orders, order stuff. And in South Korea, they were making uh, fishing rods, skis. Uh, there was still a little bit of stitching going on, um, like tents and some specialty sort of bags. And then there was a lot of componentry, like materials. This is like, you know, Korea used to be a big, you know, stitching kind of place, yeah. you know, footwear and bags and, right. and clothes. And then that componentry, like the materials and all the componentry that goes into that, was the last one to leave because those big factories were still set up. And, you know, basically by the time I was hired, um, I was in charge of the heavy stitching department, which was tents and and made sort of backpacks. Mm. But um, that department was kind of uh, dying off. But they hired me because I had studied Korean at Yonsei University and they wanted to go to North Korea. So were they in the process of... uh or thinking about moving their, their stitching operations from South Korea to North Korea? Well, they were this young company that had had a, had a big success out of trying new things. Mm. And so they thought, let's go to North Korea and just see, see if it's a good place to manufacture. Obviously, it's, you know, coming down to the labor cost in North Korea was extremely attractive. Right. But it was literally just a test. It wasn't... Um, there was no major sort of strategy behind it. It's like, mm-hmm. let's go see and see if this thing works out. And was it you that, that had to reach out to North Korea and make first contact and say, look, we'd like to come and do a little pilot program, or did somebody else do that? They got a contact through the French embassy. Um, the, the guy we mentioned before, Jean-Jacques Grouard, 
who I think set us up with somebody in Beijing, a, a North Korean, uh, you know, one of these sort of middleman middle kind man, yeah. of people. And my boss w- reached out um, through that, through the embassy, and we had this contact. And then I went up with, uh, with one of my bosses. Um, this was in my first year of working out of university. It was my mm-hmm. very first job. And we went up there in uh, the mid, uh, was it mid-year or maybe it was winter, winter of 97. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, so it was cold. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, and how was it? What was it like? You, you'd lived in, in Seoul by, by then for well, more than a year, two years, I say. And then suddenly you're in Pyongyang. What's that like? So before I went, it was a, you know, North Korea at that time was very much an unknown country. I mean, you know, first of all, the world was a different place. We didn't have internet. You couldn't just Google anything. There was zero information about the place. Um, So, you know, it was all what was sort of circulating through my head. And, you know, it it was in those days, no one had been to North Korea. Um, Although I do remember uh the sorry to jump in here i had a uh, when i came in 96 i had a copy of the lonely planet and it was mostly south korea but there was a little chapter at the end slim yeah. but there was something on, oh, was on north korea yeah interesting um because it was it just felt like this place which was just off the off the map mm. and you'd speak to south koreans in those days and they'd all say this is the place they're most interested in which probably is not the case today for south koreans and it um so in my head i just decided this place you know i had this i grew up as an expat and so even my own uh, which i call my home country now australia the first time i went there when i was eight years old and i already had an outsider's perspective and then and saw you know certain things that you know i didn't really necessarily feel um resonated with me Mm -hmm. you know as, as an outsider and so I always had this feeling like, let's go there and see and just be really open-minded and see what this place is just for myself and make up my own mind. So I, I tried to go in there with no uh, you know, preconceptions of what it would be like. Yeah. And, and you brought something not every visitor to North Korea would take. It's uh, rollerblades. <laughs> that wasn't on my first trip. Ah. That, no, that certainly on my first trip, I went up for, I think we went up for about a week or five days, something like that. Mm-hmm. I had my boss with me. We were meeting with um, a North Korean company who was involved in stitching. They're quite a major company up there. And um, yeah, I didn't have my rollerblades then. No, that was in later on. I, I started that up. Okay. Uh, so uh, then, when you went back on on, a, on subsequent visits to uh, to run this pilot program, how did that go? Uh, was the was the quality of work? Uh, to the company, to the Catalans liking, and, and was it easy to work with the North Koreans? So what happened was, uh, I mean, first of all, the communications then were just impossible. I mean, you go to the embassy in in uh, Beijing. and The North Korean embassy. The North Korean embassy, and you just have no idea what is happening. They'd come out, they'd hardly speak a word to you, they'd go in the back and then they'd scream over the phone to you know, their counterpart in North Korea. Um, and you know, then they'd come out and say, come back tomorrow. And you'd have no idea whether you're actually going to get into North Korea or not. And, you know, of course, I now know the system is they were ringing up the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Pyongyang to get their approvals Mm -hmm. because they don't actually do anything on the ground in the embassy uh, in Beijing. But in those days, I had no idea about that. So we, I, the first trip, I think actually, I'm going to, I made a mistake here. It was probably summer. I was up with my boss. It was just five days. And then my second trip, I went back and it was winter. 
And my French country manager boss was away, but I decided to go up and do this test production because uh, all by it yourself. Was, it was kind of looming, and it was and it was you know it's time to do it. Yeah. But I could contact. I mean, we didn't have email and stuff yeah. like that, and my he he wasn't there, so I just decided to go do it. So I went up there alone. And I decided to stay for a month because I wanted to see the entire production. So I went up there and then I also thought, okay, I'll save some money. So I didn't stay in the Corio Hotel. So initially I stayed in the Corio Hotel. Mm. Um, I stayed in a small hotel and I was up there for a month actually just by myself. I didn't speak to another Westerner the whole time or another foreigner. Um, there was one other foreigner who was staying in that hotel. It was the Pyongyang Ryogwan yeah, yeah. Hotel, you know, that small hotel. And there was one other foreign, I think he was like a Russian or something like that. He didn't speak English. And anyway, you'd, you know, in those days, it was kind of like you walk into a dining room and they'd sit you over one side of the yeah. dining room and, and him over the other, other side. side. Yeah. And you weren't allowed to walk across that dining room and have a conversation. So I was up there, you know, kind of, it was an interesting month because I was up there alone. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of electricity in these days. In the, in the late 90s, it was the middle of the arduous march yeah. in North Korea. And there was hardly any electricity. Like there was a couple of streets around the Korea Hotel that had these street lamps and you'd see a couple of people sitting around under, under them reading a book. And even in my hotel room, I had some Korean study books and I couldn't even see them. Wow. So I'd be in my hotel room, yeah. didn't know what to do at night. There's right. no TV, there's no reading going on. Yeah. I, you know, it was pretty boring. I was 22 years old. Yeah. And so I was doing a lot of exercise. Um, that was my major thing was going for runs along the river and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Was there someone who was tasked with uh, being with you at all times? Yeah. So the first trip I went up, um, it was kind of a funny thing because they hired me to Cathlon because I was a foreigner. I can go to North Korea and I can speak Korean. I mean, maybe they needed somebody to anyway take care of this heavy stitching department anyway. So, But they then we got this advice from this guy from the French embassy, that I shouldn't speak Korean. So, so they, you shouldn't speak Korean? They shouldn't, I shouldn't speak Korean. So this is the first time I went up. Mm. So the first time I went up, my translator was French. It was a French company, so they gave me a French translator. Of course. Now, I spoke French okay back then, but I wouldn't. my Korean was better. <laughs> so for the whole week, I was sitting there like, you know, and they're speaking this French to me, and then I'm like, and then they're speaking Korean to themselves, and it was... Uh, Anyway, it was a bit of a mess. That's so bizarre. the next time I went back up, I just decided I'm going to speak yeah. Korean. And so I did. Mm -hmm. They still gave me a French translator. Mm. Um, but I ended up speaking Korean, um, you know, with, with people then. So, and that was fine. The North Koreans, they were like, why didn't you tell us you spoke Korean? Right. <laughs> it's quite, it was quite funny, you know. They, they were surprised. That, that would, I can imagine. Now, you said that that was the... Uh the time of the arduous march, sort of the tail end of it. Did you see any signs of that? Any signs of, of the hunger and impoverishment that the, the nation outside Pyongyang was going through? Yeah, so in, on that trip, I didn't go outside of Pyongyang. Um, I'd have to say that there was a, definitely a very different feeling in Pyongyang mm. than there is today. It was even the kind of food that was served up to you and the um and the and uh, you know as i said before the lights i yeah. mean the city was 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 black i could only assume there was no elevators in buildings at all um what you know, floor was, was your hotel room on my, my in my hotel so the first time i went to the choreo hotel i was i can't remember what floor i was on but there was an elevator in the choreo hotel i remember there was this 
there was hardly any foreigners there um, at that time. I remember there was this uh, one French guy. He was a cartoonist, mm. and he would be he was learning the violin, and he'd play outside in the corridor because there was a bit more light in the corridor oh, than, in, than in the hotel room. But um, just walking around the hotel as well, there's hardly any light. But I was then in the when I stayed for a month, I was in the Pyongyang Ryogwan. And that's a, that's a small, you know, low-rise hotel. So it might have only been the second floor or something. Okay, right. So no, no lift needed there. Yeah. No, no. Uh, you said that there was a, a French cartoonist. I wonder, did you ever read the, uh, the comic book called Pyongyang by the, uh, I think he's a Quebec cartoonist named Guy Delisle, and it's about the, his experience living and working as a cartoonist in Pyongyang. It, it, it was a beautifully written book, and I've, I, have, um, I have seen it, but it wasn't the same guy. This ah. guy was definitely French. Right. Um, they, I think they were making some movies, and quite well-known ones at the time. Um, and he was, yeah, they were using North Korean uh, labor for the, uh, or, you know, cartoonists to right. draw it up. Yeah. And, and so how, so ha- back to this, uh, the pilot project for Decathlon, how did that work out in the end? What happened was, so we sent the materials up um, because we weren't, you know, to get the materials there, the right, the right colors and stuff, we weren't, you know, confident on that. The labor cost was unbelievably cheap mm. in North Korea at the time. And so it was by far the cheapest place you could do it. I mean, I did this whole production and it was freezing in the factory. And so the zipper wasn't working properly. So I'd be in the factory and I'd be... Because it was frozen. Yeah. And I'd be, I was doing these zippers and I'm like, to the guys, I'm like, these zippers are not... I mean, I thought they'd stitched it wrong or something. Uh-huh. But when we... So I uh, initially failed the production... Then we sent the production to 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 France, mm-hmm. and they're like, "No, the zippers work fine." <laughs> so actually, it was just because it was minus five in the factory. Oh my gosh! And so my hands weren't working properly. Well, how about the workers? How were they? Yeah, so it was mainly, you know, young girls who I guess were between the ages of probably eighteen and twenty-five or something before they got married um, in the factory, and. They, um, you know, they're all assigned work, right? There was nobody had the opportunity to go work where they like. Mm. And, you know, they, it was, it was just freezing in that factory. And, I mean, I found it very uncomfortable to be in wow, the factory. Yeah. And I'd be sitting around that factory, you know, pretty much all day. There was not much to do. I mean, yeah. you're watching people stitch bags, right? Mm. So I'd be wandering around the factory and um, my guide was kind of... Um, he was pretty worried about me. Like I'd even walk to the window or something and he'd like, you know, come over and say, what are you looking at? And, you know, if I went to the bathroom or something like this, he was always, you know, he's just shadowing me the whole time. So wow. it was, I've, I found it a pretty tough, you know, month to be there alone, you know, at, at, at that time. Mm. And, and the conditions in the factory, it seemed to me that half the time they, they spent just making up stuff for the festivals, mm. you know, and... The other half of the time, they, they seem to just do nothing. But because of the Korean work ethic, which is just different to anything almost anywhere in the world, people would still front up at work and they'll stay there from, you know, from morning to night, uh, you know, and that's their life, right? And their, all their meals are in the factory. Right. So they're, they're, they're dependent on the factory for their, for their food, aren't they? Yeah, they, their food delivery system was through the factory. Their their entertainment. I mean, I think you know, every now and again they watch a movie that was done in the factory. Mm. You know, every Saturday they had their educational sort of talks, and that was done in the factory. So it was just, 
you know, you, you get assigned to that job and, uh, and that's it. I mean, you got no choice, right? So, and what was the uh, what did the company think of the, these tests? You know, did, why did it decide not to go on? Was it because of the factory conditions, or or any other particular reason? It was really the communications and the difficulties of going to North Korea, the difficulties of talking across this. And it's not just a border. I mean, even if they were trying to do it out of an office in in China and stuff like this, by the time you sent the materials there and the and the cost of doing that, um, it's just you know that labor cost is not important enough mm. to be able to make it make it all happen in North Korea. So something that was incredibly labor tent- intensive could could work if you were doing a huge number of the same products. Right. But we were doing reasonably small runs of each type of bag and reasonably frequent stuff mm. and just the communications. It was just too too difficult. Yeah. Right. And and but then so tell us then about how you did eventually start uh, rollerblading around. <laughs> uh, so after that, I worked for um, a consultancy company in. Um, so in in two thousand, they had the initial um, summit. Um, ah, the, the Kim Dae Jung Kim Jong Il summit Kim yeah, in June two thousand. Yeah, that's right. And so after that, there was this um, surge of interest mm. in North Korea by businesses you know under the assumption that this country might open up right you know in the 90s there was already a feeling like things could happen i mean china had already you know was well on its way uh russia had already you know dropped its its communist um communism that the cold war was over and everyone was like well north korea is next Mm. and so it's just when it's going to happen and the summit was like this idea, the idea, this could be the catalyst. Right. And so after that, we had a lot of country managers for foreign companies who were based in South Korea, and they'd be naturally given the mandate over North Korea. Yeah. And so I got hired by this consultancy firm just for North Korea, based on the fact that basically I've been there twice. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, and so we started going up, and I started taking foreign companies up there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're kind of like a uh, sort of a handholder, bringing foreign companies up there and doing the the sort of fixing and and speaking Korean for them. Yeah. So I mean, let's say setting up meetings for them. You know, finding counterparts, doing some investigations into um, you know, into whatever industry they're doing, and um, you know, just generally facilitating. And so I was going. I was living in South Korea. This is like from 2000 to 2005. And that was my job. So I was going up to North Korea every every mo- couple of months, maybe, right. um, for a trip. And you know, being a young, active guy, I wanted to. You know, I was always wanting to do sports, right? So I'd take my rollerblades up, and I just started running the city. I mean, Pyongyang is a rollerblading heaven. It's uh, you know, well, it was then. I mean, there were fewer cars back then, weren't there? Very few cars. You know, these big open flat roads, mm. um, good surfaces, and you know, there was no other way to get around the city by yourself, right? Because you, if you go to North Korea, you can't just go and jump on by yourself, mm. jump on public transport. Or you, you, so it's either run or walk. Right. And rollerblades got me around the whole city. So yeah. I was just, you know, I was just loving it. I mean, it's like, you know, and it was like I was the only one, you know, you wouldn't see any foreigners really on the streets. I was the only one doing it. So I'd take up my rollerblades and you know, go around the whole city. And I did this a few times, but, you know, I was probably 
you know, pushing it a little bit. So eventually they they stopped me being my rollerblades anymore. Who was it that, that gave you the message to don't, not do it any longer? My uh, my guide. Ah, your guide yeah, said, yeah, I don't said, think... They said, we're not going to let you in with rollerblades again. Wow. <laughs> Gee, that was absolutely... <laughs> You've had your fun. It's been fun. But, uh, you know, ah. it's enough of that. But you saw a lot of Pyongyang before then. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was lucky enough to be going up on these visits where we'd go and see um, various things. So we'd go see a cement factory or go see a food factory. Mm. And so just with work, we'd see a lot of the country. Um, then, you know, being active, I was often, you know, prior to that, I was often just running around um, uh, and doing that. And then when I had the rollerblades, it just uh, it opened up the whole city for me so I could... Uh, it was it was good times. Did you rollerblade around the uh, the traffic police women, the traffic <laughs> controllers? In I Pyongyang? did, yeah, I did, and that was that was quite funny. They blow the whistles at me, and um, also around the square, Kim Il Sung Square. Ah, yeah, that was that was good, a good place to go, bit of a favourite, and uh, that does look like it would be a good place to uh, to rollerblade. I, I've often thought about uh, opening an outdoor cafe there one day. Uh, wouldn't it be? I mean, Pyongyang, it's such a beautiful city, right? It's, um, I think so. Um, I think it's going to become one day uh, known as a very special city in Asia. I think it's a beautiful city. It's got that sort of a stare look to it with, you know, it's, it's uncluttered, uh, lovely buildings. And um, yeah, it, it could be something special. It'll take some time, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and you, you've also um, had some other sort of run-ins with authority figures in uh, in North Korea, haven't you? Well, I, you know, all of these are just sort of, you know, accidental kind of things. So it was, I think it's a mix of uh, North Korea being a uh, a place where they have these rules and regulations or, you know, the, the guides don't like... If if you if attention is brought to yourself as mm. somebody who's going there, then the guides they then attention is brought to them, and people in North Korea don't like attention uh, being brought to them. So, I have, you know, just been active and been young. I've just walked out and explored the city a lot, my you know, on foot, and you know, at certain times, I've um, you know I've found where the boundaries of the rules are by doing that. Mm -hmm. So none of it has been, you know, advertently trying to to break the rules. But on the other hand, I have actually also, you know, I came, I used to go to boarding school in Australia. And after boarding school, I had this very strong sense of freedom. And <laughs> I did, and this initial guide I had, for example, um, he, was, he was just way too close to me and he was pretty annoying. And so I'd, you know, for example, we went to Myohyang-san. Mm -hmm. Like he... I went for a run once and then I kind of ran too far and then got, you know, sort of a bit of attention was brought to uh, to him. So he started really shadowing me on the weekend. So I was up there for a month and he couldn't go home. So we went out to Myohyang-san. Which is a mountain in the middle of, uh, of North Korea. Yeah, and we went up the mountain um, or we, we, we went hiking. Yeah. But I, you know, I was pretty pretty fit in those days. So I decided to run up the mountain. So I wow. ran... I ran, I was basically ran up the whole mountain. He kept up with me for about the first five kilometers. Boy. And then I ended up losing him. Um, and then the track finished, but then I could see we weren't actually at the summit. So I wanted to get right to the top. Yeah. 
So I went off into the bush and I got lost in there for a few hours. Oi. And when I came out, there he was there, the guide was there, and they had the, uh, the, the park ranger or the caretaker or whatever, and they were there. And I remember they said um, they were worried because the guy had seen a bear. <laughs> A bear, bear on the mountain? Yeah, that morning. So wow. he, he th- they thought that maybe I'd uh, come entangled in the bear. Oh but my. That's, isn't that nice? Like there's obviously in those days at least still still some bears up there yeah. in uh, in San. And Myohyang San is also where they've got the presence, you know, the yeah, Kimbo Song's uh, presence. What do they call it? The International House of Friendship, where they house all the gifts that uh, Kim Il-sung ever received. Did, did and you Kim ever Jong-il go there? Received. I've been there twice on, on two different tours. Yeah. They take you there and they have... Too many things to uh, to to see. You know, they tell you something like, if you spend one minute looking at every gift, you'll be here for ten thousand years or something. You know, very something very long. Like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're the most some of the most beautiful things I've seen. They're yeah. just, uh, yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah, I think the so from two thousand to two thousand five, I was you know a regular traveler there, and you know had some pretty interesting experiences. I mean, another one which was quite fun was I spent quite a lot of time in. Uh, in Yambian or, uh-huh. or Yongil or um, in Korean, and also in Dandong, which are on the side of the uh, on the Chinese on the side. Chinese side of the border, right? I was I was doing stuff there, you know, related to clients and and either doing studies or or even procuring materials from there to send into North Korea that you can get in North Korea. So I um, have been up along the border on the Chinese side of the Tumen River which is just fascinating. You, it's a very small river and you can see right across into North Korea. I mean, oh, yeah. you, could, you could throw a tennis ball over to the village there. Yeah. And another kind of cool thing I did was on the Yalu River on the, in Dandong. I remember around about 2003, there was all these, um, there was this chi- little group of Chinese and they were at the river going for swim. And so I, you know, I, wanted, I, was, I was always keen to jump in the water and what they do is they swim across to North Korea. So I said, okay, I'm going to like join a, like you. Like a dare? No, no, we, they just did it every day. They, I mean, it was, like a, it was like their little exercise thing. And I said, and, you know, I asked them, I said, look, what happens when you get to the other side? And they said, as long as you don't get out of the water, you don't get arrested. So <laughs> I thought this is, this is pretty good. So we would swim across every day and I joined them every single day and we swam across to North Korea to Shinjuku. Wow. So you don't get out of the water. You just get out, you know, to your knees. Yeah. And then just swim back. And Were there soldiers uh, there looking at you? No, I never saw um, any soldiers on. Mm. I have seen soldiers on the border, um, like somewhere else a little bit further up that river. There's a place where there's a wall in China that comes out near the um, border and there's also a place where there's these islands in the Yalu River. Yep. And on those islands there's some North Korean guards and you can actually reach out and hand a pack of cigarettes across a little estuary. Right. But I, when I swam over, I never actually saw any, mm. any guards. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite fun. Mm. And you're, um, let me see, I'm, I'm trying to think now how to uh, talk about that thing that you don't want to mention by name. Uh, I mean, look, it's, I, I guess what we're getting down to is how, you know, where the boundaries are in North Korea, right? And so there's a lot of um, people who go to North Korea and they, sort of self self sense you know sense of themselves yeah um and they will define their own boundaries for themselves yeah. and not do anything and there's a difference between doing something which is you know 
unethical um, or doing something where which would be considered rude or bad in any other place. And, and also a difference between just going for a walk, right? So I've, you know, I've had a few experiences where I've, um, you know, sort of got to the end of those boundaries. And, you know, I don't really want to go into specific situations because, you know, I've had, you know, work for companies and been engaged in, and, you know, still hopefully in the future with, with those things. I mean, some of these things are, I think just because I was just so young when mm. I was going there, right? I was like in my 20s, I was a very active guy and also very adventurous. You know, I'd grown up in uh, Papua New Guinea and we'd, uh, we didn't really have any boundaries there. So I kind of was just off doing my thing. Yeah. Um, so I have had, yeah, I, I have had those experiences. But I have to say, look, you know, my feeling is, is I've been always been treated very well by the North Koreans. They've... You know, in business, the they've stuck to the contracts that we've signed. Mm-hmm. They've stuck to the agreements that we've made. The major thing that has been difficult for doing business there has been the communications and like the and and information and stuff like that. But in terms of the um, you know the regulatory environment, it's been it's been fine, and we've had some pretty good experiences there as well. So there was there was a time there though when you weren't welcome for a while in North Korea, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean they that wouldn't was, give you a visa. That that really was related to you know a particular incident where you know we I I I, I basically you know pushed those boundaries a little bit too far. So you know I mean North Korea is a place where there's regulation for people, whether you're North Korean or foreigner. And they have this, you know, they have a system of um, approvals if you want to travel around the country. So um, before you want to go anywhere, you have to get those approvals. And we have at time, and any foreigner who goes there can, especially if you're trying to get things done, you will get frustrated by those rules, as a North Korean would. Mm-hmm. Um, these, you, you saw the same s- sort of regulations in China in the early days, and I'm pretty sure there'll be lots of foreigners who were in China in the early days who pushed up against those boundaries, and over time they they sort of they they lapsed. I have found that North Korea has got easier as a foreigner. So when I first went there, for example, they were extremely paranoid about taking photographs. Ah. And so I got into trouble for that. Um, and those, those same, you know, that trouble I got into then, I wouldn't get in trouble for today. Now you can, it's, you know, everyone knows, North Korea knows there's photos of North Korea all over the place now. And you can, you know, they're pretty, pretty free and easy with you taking photographs. They're not too worried. So it, it's just things like that. You know, there's been changing goalposts and you don't walk into North Korea and somebody doesn't meet you at the airport and say, and say, here's the rules. They say, welcome to Korea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they start talking to you and they ask you questions about your country and they show, tell you about theirs, but no one actually says where the rules are. And then, you know, we all know there's rules there. And if you self-regulate too much, you're going to miss out on, you know, conversations you can have and you know, a bit of life and a bit of, you know, and, you know, and seeing the country. And I just found, yeah, as I said, often I was there alone. Um, I was young and 
I had to get out of the hotel. I was I was stifled. <laughs> On the topic of getting in trouble in North Korea, which is yeah. a phrase you just used, there's a whole spectrum of getting in trouble of, uh, in North Korea, right? I mean, there's, yeah. on the one hand, there's um, being yelled at by someone in authority uh, and, and being told, you know, um, we'll send you the next plane back home. And the other end, you've got Otto Warmbier and, you know, yeah. getting 15 years in jail and coming, coming home in a coma. It's a, it's a big spectrum there. How, what, what's the worst you've ever experienced in terms of getting in trouble in North Korea? Let, let's start with that and then, and then I've got a follow-up. Yeah, so for me, it's always been something where the boundaries are not established and then I've pushed a little bit too far, like, you know, went off by myself walking around or, or going for a run or whatever and, you know, going, going a little bit too far and, you know, then somebody saying, okay, no, that's enough and then stopping me, you know, whether it be the, the police up there or whatever and taking me somewhere. And they've just come and asked me a lot of questions, like, what are you doing there? And mm-hmm. I'll be like, well, I was just going for a run. And, you know, these questions would be fairly persistent. But they always, you know, for me, I was up there. Let's put it myself into the time context I was there. Um, 97 to 2006 was the main time I was there. So they were always very polite. Um, you know, I had never had a feeling like I was under any sort of, you know, people were they were just pointing, they were just showing me where those, where those boundaries were. And I, they didn't rough you up? No, 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 nothing Did, like that. Didn't no, they, threaten to charge you with a crime? No, they, they never threatened me at all. It, it, was always, it was always, I mean, I, look, I never did anything very bad. I mm. mean, it was always just a conversation about, look, you're here and we want you to sort of, you know, toe the line a bit more. Um, and I think just over time they just realized, you know, that I was, you'd have these conversations sometimes and they'd be like, you, depending on your guide, like there'd be people who are kind of suspicious and I'd always be telling them, look, guys, no one cares I'm here. You know, this is, you know, this whole idea of anything subversive happening is just, you know, it's kind of like a really old-fashioned thing in the world, right? I mean, all of surveillance and done now is, is all done digitally and all that kind of stuff. So they just don't need, you know, this kind of, you know, personal kind of stuff going on. So I, I never had a feeling that, I was ever, you know, there was no one ever really angry at me. They, they'd find, they'd, they'd sort of, you know, come and get me and they'd sort of laugh a bit and there'd be, so there'd be a bit of a bit of humor in the situation. So sometimes there were some serious faces, but they were never, yeah, never anything where I felt under any threat. And I felt like if I did something, you know, in uh, North Korea in those days, the worst that would happen would be just you get deported. Um, I wonder if it, it's that, that perhaps that you were very lucky, you know, uh, d- just leaving aside Americans for a moment, because we know that the North Koreans seem to reserve the harshest treatment for the Americans for political reasons. Yeah. Right? That there are either that because um, there's a bit of hostage diplomacy be, to be played there or that there's some points to be scored against America. But just leaving aside Americans for a moment, I'm thinking of um, there was the the Dutch uh, stamp dealer who, from around 2000 to I want to say 2011, was going to North Korea multiple times a year, buying stamps and posters and taking them back to the Netherlands and, mm-hmm. and dealing with them there. And then one day he was picked up and he was held for two weeks and made to sign a, a confession, a statement, and then he only then he was allowed to go after his family was you know very panicked because he didn't get his flight home. Then there's the Australian student Alex Sigley who was studying there. 
that time that uh, that Trump and Kim and and Moon met for the mini summit in Panmunjom. So I want to say June 2019 or June 2018. Anyway, let's say June 2019. Yeah, June 2019. And Alex Sigley was picked up and he was held for a while and made to sign a statement and, and apologize. And and it never happened. Do you think that was just because you were lucky? Because you said it's gotten easier over I, time. I, but but those uh, things happen after. Sorry, you, you, you're correct. So some things have got easier and more open. But I think there was this sort of more gentleman's agreement back in those days. Mm. And, you know, I think this is not just – we're not just talking about North Korea here. We're talking about the world. Um, so there's been times in the world when there's been a strategic rivalry between nations. I mean, think back to the great game in, you know, Russia and, and the UK for about 100 years, um, you know, in the 19th century. And they, um, you know, at the time, they still had this gentleman's agreement um, with each other, even though they were rivals when they'd meet out in the, you know, the steps of Central Asia and stuff. Um, and I felt like we, I was sort of, you know, in the world before the internet and the world before all of this, you just had that feeling with, mm. with the world. Like, you know, there was, there was less of this. I mean, if you went to Iran and the Middle East, I think it was different, right? You know, with hostages and stuff. But... Up until then, I'd never heard of anything happening with North Korea, and it all seems to have happened in the last decade. So it's, something's changed, you know. Um, that's my feeling about it. I came here uh, in the summer of 96, and I think it would have been around this time, September of 96, that there was an American man who swam across the Tumen River from somewhere near Dandong into North Korea. Did he? I he never got, heard he got of out him. of the water. Yeah. And uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, I think he was, uh, his mother was Korean and his father was a white American, uh, born, oh, yeah. a, a military uh, fellow. Who, mm. uh, so he, this young man was in his 20s, swam across the river, got out and started walking around uh, in a North Korean town on the other side of the river. And he had, I, I believe he had a, a dream of, of becoming a missionary over there. Like, he mm. said, you know, uh, God had told him to go and, and convert the North Koreans. And so they, they spotted him because he's tall, um, half white and so they, they picked him mm. up and he was the first American who was held in a hotel in Pyongyang for a, about a month mm. until the uh, then governor of, of New Mexico uh, uh, Bill Richardson actually flew out and negotiated his release and they presented a big bill that says this is for your month that the, mm. whatever the hotel was that they held him mm. at maybe it was the Angakt or maybe it was Cordial he said, you know you, you owe this many thousands of dollars uh, for your stay in now, our can country. You, so, so when you think about that, yeah. that is a really, really benign response. I mean, imagine if you, you know, one of us was to cross, you know, any border in the world. We're not talking about Europe or something like that. Talking, you know, any other border. I mean, you know, China, Indonesia. You know, where I live now, uh, and you illegally got picked up. I mean, you wouldn't get put in a hotel for a month, and then that was it, right? So. You know, I, I think that story just goes to show that in those days, it was, quite, it was quite different in terms of how exposed you were. So something's happened over the last 10 years. I mean, there's, there's been much more of a, um, you know, all of these cases that you sort of mentioned before are all things that, you know, kind of shocked me. I mean, it also, in those days when I was going there, Americans weren't allowed to go there. Mm. So, you know, with an American going there, I would have been you know, a lot more careful um, because that it, it, you're much more likely to be used as a, for, for, for diplomatic reasons, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, so your major uh, time in North Korea ended in 2006. That's almost 20 years ago. But you went back a few years ago in 2019, I think, didn't you? Yeah, 20, uh, 2018. 18. Um, so I went back. I, you know, I'm still engaged with some people, um, the organization who I was doing some work with, and we went back and, you know, I, I, it's, it's a personal thing for me. Like I just, so I was personally paying and, and stuff at that trip. I just, look, I find North Korea a fascinating place, as of course you do. It's a example of a country which is very sophisticated and civilized, but living in history. I mean, if you look at North Korea, it has come straight out of the Chosun dynasty into Japanese occupation and then into North Korea. It, it has not have, you know, had any history of engagement with the outside world. And for me, that even when it comes down to just the aesthetics of it, I mean, you know, walking around a hotel in Pyongyang is like walking into an Alfred Hitchcock, you know, movie. It's Everything's in 50s style and a little bit less so today, but in 97... You know, even hairstyles and stuff, even your, like I remember having, um, you know, they'd always assign you a translator. Yeah. And I remember some of their English, like it was learnt from books back in the 50s. So yeah. they'd bring out these 50s expressions and stuff like that. But so I've, I've you know, always been interested in cultures and different places. I, I grew up in Papua New Guinea and, you know, that's a place which is also a very interesting original country, but it's a tribal country and doesn't have a, history of administration across a whole country but north korea is kind of i mean there's no place like it in the world so for that reason i personally like to stay engaged um just because it's just so fascinating so um yeah so that's why i went back in 2018 and you know the the place had changed a lot the economy has changed in north korea it is no longer when i was there in the late 90s you'd have these ideological arguments um and there was a but nowadays that seems to have gone away um the sort of reverence of people for um central authority seems to be freer in a way let's say it's just a bit more um it feels like they'd gone through a a step towards a you know more capitalist economy and with you know this we've seen this okay you know over the time we've been there but it's becoming a place where i think if there was a change of strategy it could really change very very fast the the people's minds have changed a bit as well I, it's funny this internet i mean they don't have internet there but it's still you know stuff is still just the whole world has changed with it and i think north korea as well how do you i mean you 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 have a fascination you you remain engaged perhaps mm. you want to work there or do something there in the future yeah well what what about you know the, the issue of, of people's uh, rights and freedoms there in north korea you know in pyongyang you're meeting the the the, the best of the best of somehow the elite of society but you know out there you've got somewhere around 20 million people who who may not have the opportunities, who probably don't have the opportunities that the people in Pyongyang do, and they certainly don't have the opportunities to move to other countries where they might. So how do you deal with that? We, we as if we're people, we're doing business, we're going to have zero effect on the maintenance of any um, political system. It's the kind of you know, money we're talking about and the kind of engagement is so small that it has no consequence at all. 
But for me, for you know, North Korea, in order to open up in a way, it needs to see the possibility of engagement with the outside world in a in in a in a way that's safe for itself. I mean, everybody's you know wants change in a systematic way because any other change in history, if we look in human history, has always ended up in terrible situations. Every revolution, you know, that I can think of in recent history has usually has ended up terrible. I mean, think about the Russians, you know, and, and you know, they had a real reason to have a revolution in 1917, um, you know, because that system was terrible. And mm. the consequences of that revolution were that they, they ended up with less rights. So I think that, you know, for me personally, I think that the way for opening up and for things to get better is engagement with the outside world. And if we're just playing a small part of that, that's a good thing. But as I said, we have no, there's absolutely no chance that we're having any effect upon which direction that country is going. That country is deciding which direction it's going based on its own, its own reasons and nothing to do with, we, we don't, we, we, we're not even a blip on the radar. Yeah. Right. But the, uh, but the leadership of the country is not the country in total, is it? Well, we're not, you know, we're not engaged with the leadership. We're engaged with, um, you know, of course, we don't meet people, you know, high up like that. Yeah. We're, we're meeting people who, let's say they're, <laughs> I think they're North Koreans who also want the same things that we want. I mean, they, whether we're meeting people from the Ministry of Trade and all these companies, they also want that engagement. So we're on the same page, you know, the people who we're meeting with. And, I mean, there is this broader, you know, conversation that goes around which you know says you shouldn't have any engagement whatsoever but look i live in a country now indonesia which i don't think it has the it's not as well celebrated their lack of human rights but i see you know there's a lot of their human rights are very different to ours for example and then there's a lot of other examples around the world of countries which um have relationships with the very different with um, the West, for example, whose human rights are also pretty, uh, you know, pretty curbed. I mean, think of, you know, in a lot of countries in the Middle East. So I think that a lot of this dialogue has been pushed by, you know, for interests um, to sort of paint that, you know, that place with a certain brush. I'm not saying, you know, as a, as a small, you know, person, a non-actor on this, on this scene, I can't really, um, you know, I don't want to talk too much and, you know, get too, too, too in-depth about what my personal thoughts are on this other than, other than to say that um, I think that North Korea is a place that has that ability to change and I see other places that don't. So North Korea to me has a real possibility to, to become something and it can change direction. That's my feeling. And I guess one of the reasons for that is that this is purely a political thing. It's not it's like, like look at the places in the world that have um, that are premised upon, upon a religion. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to change a religion than a political you know, viewpoint. A political viewpoint is still, no matter how rational or flawed is that argument, is still premised upon it being um, upon a merit 
based system. So whether that is whether it's true or or false, it's still premised upon upon merit. A religious one is not is not premised upon merit. It's premised upon faith, and you're not allowed to you know to question it whatsoever. So. For me, North Korea can change, and you know I always believed it can. And it's kind of strange to me that it hasn't. I thought it had an opportunity with China and mm. Russia changing. We we were just going to be on the forefront of that change. I mean, we don't look at you know companies that went into China in the seventies and eighties and push, point our fingers and say, look, they were doing the wrong thing. You'd say, look, they were they were doing the right thing. You know, all those people who, who have those engagements with China at that time, and I strongly believe that the Chinese people's lives they improved. You know, they. You know, I think Chinese friends of mine, they'd all say this was, this was a good thing. And, you know, any small part the foreigners played in that was a, was a good part to play. And so you would yeah. say that, um, that the best thing that people can do to help uh, North Korea change in a, in a positive direction, to, to give those opportunities for North Koreans to be creative and to fulfill their, their happiness would be to continue to engage in them and, and show them possibilities. Yeah, the, but, the, the first thing I'd say is that Whatever we're doing, you know, any tourism that goes in there, any relations you have, any, any inviting North Koreans overseas for whatever reason, for study or whatever, any money put into that, any aid money, any business is not going to make any effect on the success of that, that political system that it must be the thing that people who are against people going there are, are, are against, right? So... You know, for me, I would say so. First of all, their argument is would be just flawed in that it's not going to make any effect. So will you it mean have, to, to not engage will not have any effect? It, to 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 not engage our our engagement is not having any sort of maintenance of system effect mm -hmm. on the country. But I think we have a positive engagement with the people now. Uh, you know, even if people who you meet in North Korea are somewhat or very much tailored to whom you meet, though I feel I've met a lot more people there just by the fact that, you know, we speak the language or whatever, um, or just time spent there, um, you still, uh, over time, are having these setting up relations and having many, many conversations and just sort of passing across that, you know, the the humanity and the and and the relationships and so you know the i think that is always beneficial for people to be talking and engaging i just i just think that you know it helps the world i mean the more friends you have in more places and the more engagement you have the, the less likely you can become enemies with people so i i think it's a positive you know that's on, on my side that's you know very strong in my mind that this is this is a positive thing to do, um, being engaging with North Korea in whatever way you can. Yeah, that's, okay, well, that's, that's my a, feeling. <laughs> that's a good place to end then. Thanks very yeah. much, Charlie Thurwell, for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Jacko. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments of the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access and a free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks as always to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, mouth music, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks very much. Let's take it next time. Bye-bye.